and encyclopedia compendium of all things talking heads. This is good, good, good rock and roll uh, music. Welcome to the show. (laughs) That fade out gets me every time. It's a bit of a... It's a a steep cliff. A cutoff there. It's a Thelma and Louise-ish cliff. Uh, I'm a fan of show Of Thelma and Louise, yeah. No, of that cutoff. Oh, okay. Thelma and Louise. Yeah. What about those cutoffs on uh, Jessica Simpson in the uh, These Boots Are Made Duke, For Walking video? Or the Dukes of Hazard movie. Come on. Well, I mean, they're the same cutoffs, so I guess we're talking about the same thing. Because she sang that song for the Dukes of Hazard. Wait, this is an episode of I Love Films instead. Absolutely. Hey, everyone. Welcome to I Love Films. This is Scott. And this is Scott. And we are talking about films today, not movies. Films. Films like The Dukes of what? Of uh, uh, William Shakespeare? No, Hazard. That's is right. It, sorry, is it called The Duke of Hazard? I don't think so. Uh, no, we're talking about more than one Duke, my friend. And these Dukes live in Hazard County. Oh. Do they ever? Those guys, you want to you, you look up the word mischief in the dictionary? Guess what two pictures you see? <laughs> you probably see pictures of us pointing at our DVDs of the Dukes of Hazard and 100%. Pointing with one hand and then thumbs up with the other hand. I guess pointing with a thumbs up on, on the right hand as well. Well, you have um, to hold the DVDs with one of the hands. So, yeah, that's true. Although I might get someone to hold it for me. You might give one of these, which is sort of a point and a thumbs and a up hold. at the same so you're, time. You're holding. Well, see, it's hard to hold something. I will I will tell you, with opposable thumbs, it is really hard to hold something, unless you're a close-up magician, without yeah. using that thumb. So it's hard to hold and give a thumbs up at the same time. But you uh, could, it sure is. You could slip it in between uh, the middle finger, which is, of course, the fuck finger. Uh, yeah. And uh, what do you call the the one uh, 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 in between the middle and the and the pinky? What would you call that finger? I know they all have names. The booger shooter. <laughs> the booger shooter. So between <laughs> the fuck finger and the booger shooter, <laughs> you could slip a DVD in there. Hold oh up, yeah. Hold up your thumb with your thumb and then point at it with your pointy. <laughs> so you could give one of these. This is and what we want for all you I love film aficionados is for you to take your pictures of you holding your Dukes of Hazard paraphernalia exactly the way we've described. Hashtag them I love films and send them to us on Twitter, and we will retweet any that we. <laughs> that but we also, receive. also, there's also just the the plain truth of it that. You look up mischief in the dictionary. You're going to see a picture of the two of us the two of holding us. Uh, Dukes of Hazard Blu-rays because this is I Love Films. True, but uh, I just have the DVD, so I might just end up holding up that. And it's it doesn't have the case anymore, so I might just hold up the DVD itself. Oh, that's fine. Which I know scratches the back, but 
I mean, to be honest, it's not that great of a movie. So, with the Dukes, a, the Duke yeah. boys, Dem Duke boys, I think it's, it's not, not a great movie. Yeah, it's not. You got to admit that it's not all that good. I mean, it's not like a film. I never saw it. <laughs> all right, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> good half. Send us that those was... picks. <laughs> yeah, we got to see them. Them gotta Duke see picks. Them. Them Duke picks. Gotta see them Dukes. Um, but yes, welcome to the show. Uh, welcome this to this show. This is what I rushed through getting my son ready. Uh, <laughs> to do. And making sure he had gloves and a mask and all of that stuff. Maybe <laughs> forgetting one or the other for this. That's right. He is playing, um, we're, we're recording this right before Halloween and uh, he's Michael Jackson for Halloween, right? So he's wearing the gloves and the mask. That's right. That's right. The glove and the mask, we should Well, say. I give him two uh left-handed gloves or right-handed right. gloves just in of case. course welcome to the show you talking talking heads to my talking head and this is a, a very special episode where we are delving into the albums that talking heads made after remain in light all of them solo records that they put out in 1981 a, a fruitful year for the heads Four records they put out in 1981, so uh, we'll be talking about all of them. We may even talk about uh, the name of this band is Talking Heads, the live album they put out in 1982. And you are not going to want to miss the climactic... <laughs> and I, I mean, it's, it's, it's not even a conclusion to their story because it goes on to even greater heights later, but this is definitely yeah. a chapter. Yeah, and, and I, this I, is of a definite saga. No, definitely. I mean, it's not part of the Skywalker saga, necessarily. Although no, it might but we be. could tie it in. We could tie we it could. in. We could. We could. I mean, look, Star Wars was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But you got you to gotta think that with all their spaceships and them and their hyperdrives and, you know, going into outer space. Mm -hmm. You know how the, the characters in Star Wars are always like, let's go into outer space today. Yeah, every single... Chewie! Like, what, would you like to go into outer space? They say that every day. Yeah, that's my Chewy impression, by the way. What'd you think of it? Yeah, that's that sounds like Solid. Uh, Chewbacca from Star Wars. Yeah, but you have to presume. Do you hear my yeah, let's hear it. Yes. Oh. Hmm. 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 Yes. Yes, I said. <laughs> Yeah, the, the way <laughs> the way Yoda says everything he says, like every technically everything he says is supposed to be really wise, but the way he says it makes him sound so stupid. <laughs> like e everyone says he's a wise, wise creature, but he really just sounds dumb. He's like he's 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 like the Anthony Kiedis of Star Wars. Well, maybe yeah. then he should just exclude Yoda should just exclusively do Anthony Kiedis lyrics. <laughs> just Red Hot Chili Peppers lyrics with for Yoda. Yeah, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mm -hmm. Wait, 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 wait. Is this an episode of Are You Talking RHCP Remy? Yes.
Aerosmith to the Zephyr song. This is Are You Talking RHCP Remy? The comprehensive and encyclopedic compendium of all things Red Hot Chili Peppers. This is good rock, punk, funk, funky music, funky, donkey music, donkey, funky, funky, donkey, funky, donkey. Uh, welcome back. Uh, on our last episode, we were just about to talk about the Uplift MoFo party plan. But uh, before we get to that, Adam, um, yeah. before the show, we were talking about the Red Hot Chili Peppers and how great their lyrics sound coming from the mouth of that curious Jedi master from Dagobah, Master Yoda. <laughs> you know what I've always liked about Yoda? And this is just off the record. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. This is on I. deep background. Deep, deep, deep background. background. Uh, his ears, they're funny. They they're come out funny. They're pointed. They come out the sides. Wait, 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 wait. You might be thinking of Shrek. Are they, are you thinking of the ones they look like little trumpets? Yeah. Little, little like. And he says things like donkey. Funky. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's right. That's He's Shrek. Yoda's hilarious. That's Shrek. That's Shrek right. The- I know it's right. <laughs> I said that's Shrek. I'm not sure how you hear that's right. When I say that's Shrek. They don't What's, sound anything alike. What is that? What's Shrek? Shrek is this, I guess he's an ogre who wanted to be left alone in the mud where he was happy. And then uh, suddenly all these fairy tale creatures started encroaching upon his land. Oh, you uh, mean Shrek 4? The movie Shrek 4? Yeah, I mean, Shrek isn't Shrek 4, if that's what you're asking. Shrek 4 starred in Shrek 4. Uh, is that what you're asking? Shrek isn't Shrek 4. Well, I thought his name was Shrek 4. I saw the movie no, he's, Shrek he, 4. He's not like Andre 3000. He doesn't have like a number after oh, his name. <laughs> I just figured it was, his name was Shrek and his last name was 4. So you thought it was like Andre 3000 where his name was yes. Shrek 4. Yes. <laughs> Why are there other Shrek movies? Other there, than- there are other. There's Shrek. Uh, there's, uh, I'm assuming, Shrek 2. And I think Shrek 3, Happily Ever After, if I had to guess. Oh my God! I've got to see. I've I've got three movies to watch. <laughs> you certainly do. And then there's all these cartoons, and then there's the spinoff Puss in Boots, uh, Jesus which I worked Christ. on for several years before uh, I I left. <laughs> and but, that sounds but, fun. Yeah, it was so fun. But uh, uh, what we're talking about is Yoda, who's from the the Star Wars universe, and he talks like instead of donkey, he sounds like this donkey. Ah, uh, okay. So I'm thinking of just Shrek one, just regular Shrek. He's not Shrek one. He's Shrek. He's he's not just regular Shrek. Shrek he's okay. Shrek. So that's what I'm thinking Shrek. of. Is just Shrek. Shrek. Okay. Shrek. Shrek. And he's the one that's in Star Wars that says all the red no, hot chili pepper stuff. No, 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 no. You're thinking of Yoda. Yoda is the guy who who says everything, and it sounds like a, a an Anthony Kiedis lyric. They they sound alike. And this this Adam. This Wait, is I my... thought that was Shrek 4, though. No, that's not Shrek 4. That's not Shrek 1. That's not Shrek Shrek. It's, 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 it's Yoda. He sounds like Anthony Kiedis. And this is my point, okay? Yoda was thousands and thousands of years old. You can't, you're not telling me he didn't hop on a little old spaceship. He didn't just jump in an X-wing or a Y-wing, head through warp speed and go over to Earth and, you know, fucked a cave woman. Oh, and suddenly... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So you're trying to tell me Yoda 
doesn't have something to do with Anthony Kiedis. That's what I'm trying to say. They are so similar. He's short. Yoda's short. You're not telling me that Yoda didn't fuck a cave woman and the end result is Anthony Kiedis thousands of right. years later? Everyone knows that. Now they both who's being wisdom. naive? Of exactly. course. Thank you. Universally speaking. All right, sex rap lyrics. Oh, I guess I have to be more specific and put in Red Hot Chili Peppers because a lot of weird stuff came up. Oh, boy. <laughs> Is that the name of a song? Sex, sex rap? rap? Yeah, we talked about it on a previous uh, episode. Here we go. All right, this is Yoda doing the lyrics to sex rap. Swing a little melody, time is. <laughs> Make you all feel something sexually, to be is. <laughs> We're going to get it on in the groove. Now we are. Okay, I'm abandoning this. <laughs> I'm not enjoying it. <laughs> okay. Well, let me try. Let me try one more. You got, you got one in the chamber? What do you got? Getting born in the state of Mississippi. <laughs> Copper was her papa. Hippie her mama was. <laughs> she could swing a hammer. In Alabama, she did. <laughs> Price you gotta pay when you break the panorama. Okay, I again, this is exhausting. You started to get into Pee Wee Herman at the end. Panorama! <laughs> oh! Um, so, uh, you know, if you're a loyal uh, uh, listener out there, uh, someone like, akin to a Frank Pulaski, uh, please uh, put put those underneath footage from any of the Star Wars films <laughs> and just entertain us, please. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, wait. Oh, boy. I never realized on sex rap, check out these highlighted lyrics. Oh, no. Yeah, don't, I'm, not, I'm not even going to attempt. Yoda would never say anything like this. No, and Yoda we'll sued. Yoda traditionally Yoda. keeps it clean. Am I right? Like... It would be really great to watch a Star Wars movie and just, you know how you're allowed in a PG-13 movie to have one fuck? It, it yeah. just can't be, it can't be about fucking. It can't be a sexual reference. It can, right. it just has to be an expletive. Yeah. To just have him be like, mm, fucking situation this is. <laughs> Fucked up. Or this he is. Just, he drops his cane and he's like, fuck. <laughs> and then bends over really slowly to pick yeah. it up and then he goes ah as he comes back up <laughs> you know at, as betrayed as i felt watching yoda dance around in the prequels with his lightsaber remember when like was he dancing or was he fighting well he was like ricocheting around a room super yeah. fast kicking the ass of like a 7 foot tall jedi right and I remember just feeling like they're pornographically uh, exploiting the idea of Yoda. Like, this is so lame. Right. I I would feel the opposite if he dropped his cane and said, fuck. <laughs> that would redeem it for you. Yes. And what about Jar Jar Binks? Is, is if Great. He, Love Jar Jar Binks. Uh, yeah. Obviously, the only good part of it, all of the prequels. That's right. Um, just a, it, a, a bullseye. What if he said, Misa fucking horny? See, 
if, if he did that, I, I like, I already love that character. I feel like I would love it even more. Yeah. Um, great, great character, great performance, great character, great idea. Great execution of an idea. Do you think he's still alive? You know how Yoda was alive for thousands and thousands of years. And when they say Star Wars was a long time ago, um, how long do you think they're talking? They're probably talking like like three years before Jesus was born, maybe? I'm thinking, no, 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 no. I don't think it was that long ago. I think when they say long time ago. Like 1957? No, I think it was like three, four years ago. Shit, really? Yeah, because it was... It's it's just, you see in the like in the in the new ones in the J.J. Abrams ones you see like iPhones and shit and iPhones have been That's around true. since like 2009. I think it is hilarious how many movies these days have coffee cups and Starbucks cups and uh, like you know Little Women has uh, no, has has a did. water bottle in it. it. Did? Yes, and Game of Thrones had so many of them, and it's just really funny to me that it's. I mean, when you're making a movie, it's it's hard to clear the frame a lot of times, Fuck. and a lot of times things get <laughs> overlooked. Would, oh my god, they must have been furious when that Starbucks cup, or maybe they didn't care, but. In I Game mean, of people, Thrones, that was people crazy. Talked about it definitely, but let me let me look up uh, a Little Women water bottle. I didn't so know you, that about Little Women. So you women. can see, there it is, right next to Timothy Chalamet. Holy just, shit! It's like a, <laughs> it's like a, uh, a thir- one of those thermosy yeah, looking. It's like uh, a coffee cup. Uh, yeah, is that, that hilarious? Is so crazy. Right there next, right next to like uh, an old statue that's and meant he, to. It makes his wardrobe, his like period wardrobe, just look stupid. Well, I mean, it's a lot like Bob Odenkirk walking into frame at Little Women. Suddenly, you start to realize, oh wait, yes. this is a set. This is. I have and he to did say, a, he did that, a great job. He in was it. great, but that. But knowing him, it's hilarious that suddenly, an hour and twenty minutes into this movie, in walks Bob, going, "God damn it!" Yeah. Him be, it, like being a Mr. Show fan, seeing him walk into that movie was—it's hilarious, crazy. But it's not like—and I, I, here's what I was wondering—is is like when it comes out on home video, which is when people start to notice these things, is the framing different? And that's why you know how like uh, when when movies first came out on home video, they were they were adapted to meet televisions, and instead of Sometimes they would do pan and scan, yeah, but, yeah. but a lot of times... Sorry, like, are, are we deep into an episode of I Love Films? <laughs> we might be back. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to I Love Films. This is Scott. And this is Scott. And we're talking about, look, you can't mention films without talking about aspect ratio. Oh, yeah. We love them. Down with pan and scan. You know, you say the words pan and scan, it makes me want to run to the bathroom and throw up in the toilet. Makes me want to throw up in a pan and then, and then scan, scan it. <laughs> what a but, scam. Uh, wait, wait, what's pan your and scan scam. That's what, what I say. What's your favorite aspect ratio? If you had to pick, and I'm not going to make you pick, but if you had to. 235. I'm a 16.9, baby. Oh, 16.9. Woo. Oh, I need that extra, extra the thing space. About, the thing about the Timothy Chalamet shot with the thing, it, that, like you could paint that out with iMovie. 
Like that is totally if anyone like, ever noticed it. But think but my, about how many times they watched this movie or watched this and scene. just ne- I, I mean, I, uh, the movie I directed, I watched so many times and I don't think you could have slipped anything. But we but again, it wasn't a period piece, so we weren't trying to do anything like that. But I will say, like, OK, what I was trying to say was if you got the VHS of Pee Wee's Big Adventure or if you maybe even taped it off of cable when it first mm-hmm. came out. They would do instead of letterboxing home video, they would do pan and scan, yeah, which is they would scan. they would make it square, and then if something happens to the right or to the left of where that square was, they would like move the scan over slightly. But occasionally, what they would do, and they did this on Pee Wee's Big Adventure, is they when you film a movie, you're cutting off the top and the bottom of of the of what you shoot, what you actually shoot. And sometimes you put tape on the on the bottom of yeah. the monitor and the top of yes. the monitor, and you're shooting more than what the audience gets to see. That's right. And for TVs, they would just open it up, and and you would see everything. So on Pee Wee's Big Adventure, the original home video, you would see like how they achieved all these camera tricks, like him pulling out the endless chain on his bicycle. Right. You could see. I remember. You I could see all that. that. And it's I, so crazy. And when you would watch it at home, you'd be like, "Wait, I don't remember this." Like yeah. I, it it oh, tricked totally. me in the theater. How come I'm? But but that's what uh, uh, they used to do for home video. So I started to wonder for Little Women, is this what it is? Did they adapt the, the no, aspect ratio? No, because that's right in the middle of the frame, no matter what aspect ratio you're using. That's right there. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's there. It's just right there. It's crazy. Um, do you remember, too, when it when they would put movies on, did you see they're bringing back like the CBS Sunday night movie with oh, the yeah, with and everything? Indiana Jones and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, they played uh, Raiders or something. Yeah, I saw they were playing. That's back why to the I mentioned Futures. Indiana Jones. Well, no, I didn't know they had played that movie. But um, well, you seem to know every other fucking little bit of trivia about the listen, Sunday night listen, movie. Listen, Scott, listen. All I was trying to say was in the CBS or ABC or NBC, Sunday night, Monday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday, Saturday Happy days. Night. One the of weekend those, comes. The any, cycle any, hums. St- <laughs> sitting all week with you. What did sure. they say? Sitting all week. So you thought sitting Happy Days... all week with you. <laughs> you thought Happy Days was about Fonzie sitting with people? Yes, I, I did. I mean, they, they did talk about sit on it. Maybe it makes sense. Yeah, that's why I said that. Potsy said sit on it. And I was like, Potsy never said sit on it. Potsy was told to sit on it. God damn it. No, Potsy didn't. Oh, right. Ralph Mouth told him to sit on it. But it's written on the wall, too, isn't it? Sit on it. And he's like, God damn it. So tired of this. What were you going to say about the- I was going to say, sometimes you would watch the, the version on network TV and there would be like an extra, like they would put in deleted scenes so they oh, could yeah. fill out the- like, well, they would I don't do that. Remember this, and they did that for the Godfather. That's what the Godfather saga was. Was they had like forty extra minutes between the two movies, and so then they released it in chronological order. And thank God we're talking about the Godfather finally on this show, a, a film. real film. Um, but but for watching Su- it in order like that, Superman it's the movie, Su- yeah, it is boring. Superman the movie, they did the same thing where they took an extra forty minutes, and that's how it was advertised. Of like, hey, we got you know. I know I know all you dumb fucks saw this in the theater when it came out and you're probably doing something on Saturday night that's way more important like going out and doing drugs and partying and shit but we got this extra 40 minutes 
of Superman. So if you want to see Superman like fly around and take like one extra bullet in his chest and it bounces off and he goes, oh, ha, 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 it tickles. I'm Superman. You're so fucking stupid for trying to shoot me. Yeah. Then then stay home on Saturday night. We got this extra 40 minutes and it fucking worked. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, we, listen, it worked. It was it was it a, was a master it was a f- fucking bullseye. Fucking fucking boing. That's the sound of a arrow going into a bullseye. Boing. Um are there any film flubs if one were to look at your filmography on the internet movie database? Would you see any continuity errors, any film flubs, anything like that in your filmography? No, I I never make uh, mistakes. Uh, when I'm on mm. set, I'm there to work. <laughs> I am there to... Uh, because you take no pleasure in it. It's work for you. It's work. Like, uh, like a plumber uh, has his tool yeah. bag. I have my emotions. <laughs> I bring them to the set. I've always considered your emotions to be a tool bag. <laughs> That's that's right. You've always referred to me as a big tool bag, which I've always <laughs> taken as a compliment. I really appreciate that. Um, um, did I tell you I once worked with an actor? I don't want to blow up their spot, even though he was uh, absolutely the worst person I've ever worked with. Let me um, see if I can guess who it is. I don't think you're going to be able to guess, but I w- you know what I will say? Oh, man, should I t- even tell any part of this story? Um Someone did guess who it was after I talked about him to her. Publicly? She, what? Like the, you were telling it publicly and someone was oh, like... Oh, no I, no, I told my friend about this story. Oh, I, I thought you said Hal Buckley. <laughs> I was was like, it Hal Buckley? Famous <laughs> I actor? I don't even know who that is. <laughs> but I told my friend this story about this terrible actor who was on Bang Bang, who terrorized the PAs and... and oh, um and and okay, I'll tell you a little bit of the story. But uh, the minute this person got onto set, um, they got out of their car, and a PA. You know, traditionally, when you get onto a set, like a guest actor comes, there's a PA waiting there for the person. And the PA yeah. is always like eighteen to twenty to twenty-two or something. Yeah. Their first job, frightened. You know, um, meek, cowardly. You know, spineless. To- total pieces of shit. A toady. Essentially, um, no. But, they're the they're so they're so nice and getting yes. paid shit, but getting to be on a set and and learning how to do it. And they're all yeah. they're all like great people. Yeah. All, um. Always. But uh, and so you always want to treat them really nicely because it's yes. you know like. Uh, uh, but so this person parks, jumps out of their car, and the PA is there saying hello to this person. You know, welcome to the show, and and is going to take them back to their set. And the person goes like, get me a chicken Caesar salad now. No. no First thing, get me a Come chicken on. Caesar salad now. Um, oh, it's boy. not lunchtime. It's like the person is going to have to basically either go to catering and see if they can, you know, figure something out about it. I can't remember whether lunch was coming three hours, you know, away yeah. or it, we had already eaten. I, I don't know, but it was going to be a hassle. Like, you know, maybe they could have ordered it from a restaurant next door or something right. like that. So the person's like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, we'll get on the PA. We'll get on that, sir. Or, oh, I, I don't want to say so. Okay, it is a man. It is a man. Okay. Um, Takes him up to his dressing room. Ten minutes later, where is that 
chicken Caesar oh, salad. <laughs> and they finally are able to scrounge one up, you know, like 40 minutes later. And the everyone takes a piss into it. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Um, so, uh, and, and gross, and by I, the way, I just gross. pictured that and it's so disgusting. Uh, what the taking a piss into just a salad, piss, <laughs> piss onto a salad, piss in general is Ugh. disgusting. But so, so, um, a lot happens with this person. I don't even want to go into, but, um, they sound cool. They sound really cool. But, but the one part that, that uh, the reason why I was reminded of it is because at a certain point, we're just at our wits end with this person and they're staring into space during a break while we're waiting to set up for another shot. And mm-hmm. I have to be there next to him. And I'm just like, so why'd you start, uh, why'd you start acting? And it was kind of me like trying to figure this guy out because the guy was obviously not having a good time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, trying to figure out whether it was my show or every show or whatever. And the guy goes, well, I looked at a list of high-paying jobs because I wanted to make a lot of money. Hmm. And actor was was pretty high on the list. And so I said, eh, all right, I'll do that. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's and, such a lame answer. It's so and it but then but then the person said, What are you like a college boy? Are you like a college grad or something like that? <laughs> so then um after just a terrorizing day with this person and it's it's not and that's not even the worst of it i told my friend this story and i don't i i don't like to publicly talk about anyone on who's who's been nice enough to be on the show um because you know we didn't pay a ton of money there you know we we paid everyone a uh one particular rate that was negotiated early on in the in the in the first season, you know, because and it was it was I think we called it the John Ham rate because John accepted a really low rate. Uh, so you could tell everyone, hey, John, Hamm. John Ham took it. Yeah. yeah. And and but you could never pay anyone more than Plus, that. you're doing comedy. Bang, bang. It's not like you're expecting yeah. to get like a bunch of money. You're like, yeah. So I, I I never would go out there and talk about anyone who was, you know, bad on the show or whatever. But in this one particular instance, I was just telling my friend and, uh, and that person didn't know this actor, uh, who this actor was and was like, Oh my God, he sounds like a nightmare. And then three months later, I get a call from my friend who's like, is this actor oh, that wow. you're talking about? And then named the name. And I wow. said, yeah, why? Because he got on the set parked his car and immediately shouted for a chicken Caesar salad. Oh my God. <laughs> and I said, so, this. I feel like you did tell me who this was at one point and I'm just forgetting. I can't wait to, uh, to find out. Yeah. In any case, uh, I'll, I'll uh, off air, I'll tell you even more horror stories about what, uh, what this person did. But I guess my point is, is when you act, you hate it much like this guy. Yeah. And, um, and it's, 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 I, when I was, a kid, I was just like, what's a high paying job? Um, <laughs> and uh, and that's how I got here. So, yeah, I hate it. I hate and you it. are paid so much money for what you uh, do. Just right? exorbitant uh, amounts. And uh, boy, boy, is it uh, is it a lot of fun. <laughs> it really is. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. 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 
two eps of I Love Films this week. They are, they're really, they're really treating us right, I tell you. Uh, speaking of right, it's time to end this episode of Are You Talking RHCP? Re me right now. So see you next time. Bye. Bye. Boy, it's been a been a, a little bit of time. It's been one hot minute since we did a, a, a Are You Talking RHCP Re Me? I don't episode. get that reference. Hmm. Maybe that's why we're not doing that show anymore. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we need to take a break. Uh, when we come back to the show, we are going to be talking about my life in the bush of ghosts, the Catherine Wheel, the Tom Tom Club. Uh, and also uh, the red and the black, uh, as as w- w- maybe a little bit of um, uh, uh, the name of this band is Talking Heads. We will be right back with more. You talking Talking Heads to my Talking Head? After this. Welcome back. You talking talking heads to my talking head. And we're going to be talking about what happens with talking heads after they put out Remain in Light, which we spoke about on our last record uh, with Tawny. What do you think of Tawny? Tawny's great, huh? Oh, yeah. Tawny's terrific. And such a talented singer. I had no idea. A very talented person. Almost too much talent to be in one too body. One should... human meat body. <laughs> now, we, just to be clear, yeah. we don't want you to cancel us. Everyone on Earth has a meat body. Uh, not just Tani. Yeah, no, humans okay. are meat okay. bodies. We are, we're Sorry. not saying she has a meat body like, no, oh, wow, no, look no. at that meat body. No, 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 body no, no, no. meaning flesh meaning and bone. You met her once. Yeah, we meet with our bodies. We meet each other. <laughs> right. Um, okay, so when we last left off, Adam, mm-hmm. uh, Talking Heads had a tumultuous experience making Remain in Light, uh, where they all got mad at each other. And uh, a lot of issues with credit and uh, what initially started out as a record that was supposed to be all of them just kind of jamming and and being credited as one unit uh, uh, kind of ended up being an album where everyone fought over the credit for everything. Um, So Talking Heads had to go do these shows up in, there was one up in Canada, which was a big festival show with Elvis Costello and a a bunch of other bands uh, who were popular at the time for 70,000 people. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of peeps. That's 10 times the amount that that we played to when we did our last Are You Talking to R.E.M. review show. <laughs> so just to give you a little bit of a... Now I, now I understand the, now you the understand. sheer amount. Yeah. So uh, they, they really wanted to do songs from Remain in Light, but they couldn't uh, see how they would do it with the band just as a four-piece. Yes. Because all, all of those songs are so complex. So And Brian Eno, I guess told them uh no you won't be able to do oh, this boy that guy all sour oh us. god we know brian enough we're already talking about this don't just ring my doorbell and then we come in the it. door and tell us that and then leave we get it so uh they they knew they had to fill out the band 
So according to one of the books I read, George Harrison was was the person to fill out the band. And I mean, this makes sense. He's a Beatle. He's connected. He knows, you know, he knows everyone in the music industry. Everyone in the music industry. Of course, he's going to know them. They're all going to know who he knows. He knows Ed Sullivan. (laughs) Yeah. Why? Now, this is what I've been wondering. Why wasn't Ed Sullivan a member of Talking Heads touring band? I don't know. At least just to introduce them. He he he's friends, like best friends with one of the members of the band. We have a really, really big shoe today. Talking heads. That's all these he guys do. He could have said that off. every night and introduced Every them. single night. It doesn't make any sense. So uh, George Harrison puts the band together and he... By the way, I know of that Ed Sullivan, that that's how he talked because of the Billy Joel video. Does Billy... What Billy Joel video? Um... God, what song was Is it? it, it it's got to be off of his uh, it's uh, Ode of to, man. to 50s and 60s mo- yeah. oh, music. Yeah, oh, Uptown Girl, I think. Uptown Girl. Yeah. I so think. what What happened? What, wait, I thought up to Uptown Girl was about like a, a poor kid who's who sees Christy Brinkley and gets a boner. How does it, Ed no, Sullivan? it's not Uptown Girl. It, no, I think it's a Weird Al video, actually. Uh, <laughs> it's not Billy Joel at all. It's a Weird Al video. <laughs> <laughs> and is it, is it Weird Al parodying Billy Joel, or is it just purely no, Weird Al No, I think it's Weird Al parodying Eddie Money. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you're not only that, but you're thinking of Don Pardo from I Lost on Jeopardy, are you not? No, no, I'm not. Oh, okay, because Don Pardo, the the SNL announcer, no. very similar to Ed Sullivan. Yes, he he's in I yes. Lost on Jeopardy. So wait, Eddie Money, when did when did no, Al do? No, 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 not I Lost on Jeopardy. I am thinking of a Billy Joel video. <laughs> uh, Adam is furiously typing is. away at his keyboard to try to make sense of his. <laughs> <laughs> oh, tell her about it. That's what it was. Oh, he's into. Oh, it is a Billy Joel video. It's not right, a Weird right, Al video. Right. So a, what, they they have an Ed Sullivan imp- impersonator. So like, what suddenly him. led you to thinking it was Weird Al? Because that I lost on Jeopardy. Okay, I was uh, video. Right about that. I watched. I I probably watched it three hundred times in that one summer. Whenever that song was out, that. So you so you watched it a hundred times a month. So that's like three times a day. Three times a day for one summer. So every eight hours, would you every set, eight set hours, your alarm? <laughs> and be like, all right, it's Turn time. It Fire it up. And I would watch it. And I, wa- I loved it. Look, I loved it too, of course. Uh, big, big thrill working with him on uh, the Comedy Bang Bang TV show. Speaking of the Comedy Bang Bang TV show, did I tell you that we did an Ed Sullivan episode a black and white uh, with Josh Groban. It's uh, the third season, uh, one of our one of our best episodes, I think. And but for some reason, something in my brain, and I still have to correct myself every time I say it, would not let me say anything but Ed Sullivan. Really? So I would constantly be saying like, okay, so in our Ed Sullivan episode, Ed Sullivan episode. I don't know what the wires crossed in my brain or something to where I, I said that for uh, approximately a year. So you couldn't, you just could not say Ed Sullivan. I couldn't say Ed Sullivan where I would, uh, I would, con- and I'd be thinking it, say it right this time, say it right this time. And I would say Ed Sullivan every time. <laughs> and so you would have to like do it over and stuff? Well, we never said Ed Sullivan in the, in the actual show. I'm saying like when, whenever we would talk about it in the writer's room. 
which which is way more than just one day when you're shooting something. It's for months and months. I would say so. Our Ed Sullivan sh- our Ed Sullivan episode. Anyway, I would have fired you. Yeah, showrunner, fire you, thyself. If I were you in the position to fire people on the show, <laughs> I would have fired. Look, I would have loved nothing more than to fire myself after episode one, but uh, unfortunately. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been great? You were in the pilot. I was we in should, episode one. Well, we should we should have just switched. Yeah. It ended up being episode nine, but uh, it was the first one we filled. Yeah, we should have just swapped it. Sure. Would, it, would you have... If we had a time machine, we could go back and do that. Would you have... And this is a serious question. Yes. If I had said to you during the making of that episode, it was the first one we, we filmed, it was the pilot. Mm-hmm. If I had said after like an hour... Mm-hmm. Hey, this isn't really working out. Do you want to just switch and you host the show from now on? Right. Like legitimately with what was going on in your career at the time, would you have done it? Yeah. So you would have given up on Parks and Rec. I would have quit Parks, <laughs> even though this was only a pilot and you didn't know if it was going to get picked sure. up or not. You would have called them up the minute I said, hey, do you want to switch and said, by the way, uh, I'm I'm doing something that I truly love. <laughs> And I know I've just committed to being on this show with you guys. As whatever your character's name. Well, who was your character, Jim? You'd Jimmy stare two into times. the camera all the time? Jimmy two Jim, times. Who says everything two times like, I'm going to go get the papers. Get I'm the papers. I'm going to go get the papers. That was one of my favorite uh, Mr. Show jokes that I, I believe I wrote, but, uh, you know, 30 Which years. Which Mr. Show joke? Uh, when we did our Goodfellas parody we were trying to figure out a way, a, a thing to parody that, and everyone was saying like, uh, "Jimmy four times, Jimmy ten times." I was like, yeah. "What about what about Jimmy one time?" And so he was a guy who only said things once, and people would go, "Huh?" And he would just stare at them. <laughs> That's hilarious. I do not remember that. I was in Pally's. Um. Okay. So getting back to Talking Heads. Yeah, getting back to it. So they had to put a band together. So uh, George Harrison he calls uh, a live band. A live band, yes. George Harrison calls up some people. They got, uh, I believe, the first one to... Well, not okay. Ed he, Sullivan. He did not call Ed he Sullivan. He did not call Ed Sullivan. Um, first of all, he talked to Nona Hendricks because he'd been producing her record. We mm-hmm. talked about her last episode. She's from LaBelle, uh, singer of Lady Marmalade. So he'd been working with her. And so he's like, hey, do you want to do uh, backup vocals? She says yes. But then they contact uh, probably the the... The most key part of this band, I think, yeah. Bernie Worrell. Now, he is uh, a dude who was in Parliament Funkadelic for the past mm-hmm. few years. Uh, an amazing keyboardist. Uh, they all say the best musician of the entire group. He has perfect pitch. He knows everything about arranging. Uh, the best keyboardist. He had just quit P-Funk, and he says, yeah, this sounds fun. So he joins. Um, we also get Dillette McDonald on backing vocals, Steve Scales, who's on percussion, mm-hmm. and the guy we'd been talking about uh, that Tawny loves so much, Adrian Ballou, he comes in and decides to be uh, uh, guitar and backing vocals. And then uh, we also have, and, and this is a really weird addition, but they get another bass player. They get Busta Cherry Jones. Hmm. and. I don't know why. Like, I can't figure it out. That No one ever talks about why they hired one. Chris Fartz in his book says, well, it wasn't my idea because I didn't think we needed it because Tina had already played 
the base parts Maybe on these just records. to have, like, because some of those grooves are so crazy and that's going what, all over the place. That's Maybe what they it just... seems like. It seems like, because I think Jerry Harrison, because I think, like, George Harrison had sat down and, and written, because he was talking to, to Mr. Burns, I think, and, and said, okay, well, here's the musicians I think we need to replicate the sound on the record. And he added another bass player for whatever reason. Because sometimes it, it's just like, boom, 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 boom. But you also want... Well, they talk about how... Um, Busta Cherry Jones, he would, he would, he was supposed to be playing his parts, but he would always then start to play Tina's parts as well, because technically he was a better bass player than her. So he would just like play his own parts as well as Tina's parts, which caused some bummer. I don't know, but they all liked him. He was, he was a cool guy. Um, Yeah, he sounds real cool. (laughs) Stealing (laughs) bass parts from band member. That's not illegal. It is well not in California, it's, it's but norms. it is illegal. So, They're yeah. just shattering norms here with basic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so they get this really great. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. They get this great group together, and they they go up and they play this Canadian festival for seventy thousand people, and and they do. First of all, they just have five people on to start the 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 show. It's Talking Heads plus Adrian Blue, and everyone's like, "Oh, okay, this is cool." And then they didn't do it like Stop Making Sense where people came out one by one. Just uh, suddenly, you know, everyone else came out and everyone in the crowd's like, what? This is crazy because suddenly all these people are on the band. And then they tear into these new arrangements of these new songs and everyone goes apeshit and thinks it's really awesome. Cool. Yeah. And that is how they started being more of a 10-piece than a four-piece and that would continue on into uh, episodes. They just started shredding ass all over the world. <laughs> Sounds a lot like you. Am I right? Before you got married? Shredding ass all <laughs> over the world. <laughs> Good Lord. So they um, they also came back and played Central Park and they were like, mm-hmm. OK, this is a really good sound. But they decided to take a break and... Mr. Burns, we talked about on the last episode, he had been making a secret album with Old Sourpuss um, that Chris Farts right. went out and played drums on one track. He hadn't really told anyone about it, but uh, and it was supposed to come out before Remain in Light, but uh, it, it ended up having some issues, which we can talk about. Now, this is the album called My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. Let's hear a little bit of the first track. America is This waiting. is Mr. Burns and Old Sourpuss. Yes. Mr. Burns and Smithers. America is waiting for a message of some sort or another. And this is music for like Sunday dinner over at Grandma's house. <laughs> sure, yeah. You you bring this record over and say, Grandma, sit down in your chair. Get out the casserole because I've got a record I'd like to play. Put on some headphones and listen to this. Like, really listen to this. Yeah, listen to this. You think you know what America's all about? So this is um Let's this talk about this deal. record. This is yeah. this is a, a big deal record. 
Um, Let's talk about it conceptually, and then we can talk about it, how it came to be. Can't so wait. this came out in... You can't wait, really? Well, you don't have to, because we're starting right oh, now. Oh, great. This came out February of 1981, and became a huge, huge record. Very influential. Essentially, because what they're doing, you can hear a little bit of it here. America is waiting for a message of some sort or another. Essentially, like what, sampling. Yeah, stuff. this is one of the one of the first records to sort of sample dialogue from all over. This is uh, uh, Ray Taliaferro of KGO News Talk AM eight ten, San Francisco. They they recorded all of this sort of dialogue and and singers and people chanting um, sermons, an exorcist. Um, they recorded all of these things or, or off the TV sometimes, and then they made them the sort of singing. Instead of having singing on the record, they made these recordings the the lead vocal track. Yeah. So, very influential record. People hadn't really heard. I mean, there there had been other records sort of like this that hadn't been popular. But this was the first time that sort of the New York art collective scene heard this kind of music before. Heard this kind of music, rather. And not only was it sampling, but it also was sort of world music. It was very influential Mm -hmm. in in that respect, where um, people started... it's, It's kind of continuing what they did with... E. Zimbra and Remain in Light, where they're taking world influences, but they have, you know, sort of Arabic singing going on and Lebanese things. And let's hear another track, maybe. Hey, why not? What's like the? Uh, the here's one Chris Farts plays on. This is Regiment. You can hear his drumming on it. Here we go. <laughs> have Robert Fripp who did the guitar solo for Ezimbra playing on this. Hmm. Yeah, so this kind of blows people's minds at the time and it's yeah. still cited a lot. It's an influence on people. Yeah, some people I read I read interviews with some people saying like it just blew like other musicians saying it just blew me away. I'd never heard anything like this. Um not only the sampling element of it, but just the, the exotic sound of it mm-hmm. really made people very excited. And they say that a lot of things wouldn't exist without it. Like they, they mentioned uh, Public Enemies uh, producer was very influenced by it, taking mm-hmm. all of the samples from everything. Um, I think Moby's play record was sort of doing this, but with sort of old blues and soul records and then updating yeah. them. Yeah. 
Let's hear another. Let's hear, let's see. Let's hear the Jezebel spirit. I think is on. Not the exorcist. Right. An exorcist. An exorcist. Not the famous one. So, did you get this record? Did you go back? Not and get until, it? I mean, way later when way I was later. into talking heads, yeah. But I never, you know. Like, as a teenager, I didn't really get this, but I did get into it, like, in my 20s. Here he is. It was always one of those records that um, that I would see. I would see it in the record store, and being into Talking Heads and David Byrne, I would be like, oh, man, I should pick that up. And I just knowing it was like instrumental music, I never, I, I just never pulled the trigger on it. Well, also back then, getting an album was it was a so much of my allowance. <laughs> yeah, because it was what was it, a tape or a cassette or a CD even. A CD yeah, was like I mean, seventeen bucks. I mean, when I, I I will say that the only reason I ever got into the Smiths was because I was in Tower Records, and. Their album, uh, their double album, Hatful of Hollow, was seven dollars, and I was like, "This is too good of a deal." I had, yeah. I don't, I, I, I think I'd heard, "Please, please, please, let me get what I want" in the movie Pretty in Pink, and I was like, "Oh, this is a really good band. If I ever see their record, I'll pick it up." And then I saw it was seven dollars, and I was like, "Let's get it." But every time I would see this record, it would be like you know nine ninety nine, and I would say, "Oh, one of these days I'm gonna get it." Anyway, yeah, I didn't get it until they reissued it um, in, I believe, 2006. So we weren't around for its sort of impact. Uh, How do we feel about it in retrospect? All the stuff they're doing is kind of commonplace now. Yeah, I mean, it's cool. It's very radio heady. Um, Yeah, I see that. Yeah, especially they're like after Kid A. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like it. I'm, you know, I like pop songs. I like, you know, talking heads, but this, it's really cool. It's certainly way ahead of its time and innovative and stuff. It's not something I reach for all the time, but it's good. How, how far away are your records? Like when you reach for them? They're super far. So reaching for it is a big deal. Reaching for Hmm. stuff. I keep them on the roof of uh, my neighbor's house. So it's like not even in my... Yeah. Does your neighbor hard. know that? They don't. Okay, don't know. We we can't tell them. They're gonna steal them. I mean, possession is nine tenths of the law. Shut 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 up. Okay, sorry, 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 sorry. How about you? Were you did, what do you is this something you're I've, into? I've listened to it uh, quite a few times over the last couple of weeks. Um and it's it's like a lot of instrumental music to me. Um 
it's it's not I put it on, I enjoy it, but it's not something that I'm always like, oh man, I I gotta yeah. I gotta sit there and dissect it. Um there is a little bit of controversy about the making of this record. Why? So let's talk about a man named John Hassel. Are you ready? Can you not wait for this as well? <laughs> I think I can. <laughs> well, it's too bad. <laughs> You're not going to have to. Okay, so there's this musician, John Hassel. He is he is the uh, trumpeter. If you'll remember on our last episode in Remain in Light, he played the trumpet on the record that sounded like an elephant. Okay. So he is sort of considered to be the originator of this type of record. Mm-hmm. Um, he put out a couple of records, and um, when he was doing a live show for one of them, who should show up? But good old sourpuss. Oh boy, this guy. He shows up and he's he comes backstage and he's like, <clears throat> "Pardon me, but we should work together." And John Hassel says, "Fuck it, sounds good to me. Let's fucking do it, bro." They yeah. high five. They high ten. Um, so they collaborate on John Hassel's record, Fourth World, Volume One, Possible Musics, which comes okay. out in 1980. Okay, okay. so he Possible Musics. Possible Musics. So I'm okay. going to play a little bit of that while we talk about this. So Old Sourpuss is producing this while he's making Remain in Light. So that's why John Hassel comes down and, and plays trumpet on Remain in Light. So, this is a very influential record. People love it. It's credited with sort of influencing things like Peter Gabriel with his mm-hmm. Purity record and things like that. Like, the whole world music scene is kind of influenced by this, right? Right. So, Old Sourpuss and Mr. Burns, they call up John Hassel in between Fear of Music and Remain in Light or whatever, and they say, hey, you know what we should do? The three of us should decamp somewhere, like in the middle of the desert, and make a record together. Sort of based on, I think, a record by The Residents uh, called Eskimo, which is like supposed to sound like another country, like a made-up country making a record. Right. So John Hassel's like, yeah, that sounds good to me. Um, And then instead of the desert, Old Sourpuss and Mr. Burns go to a studio in L.A. And they start working on it without him. Now, this is this is disputed. Mr. Burns says, like, well, we invited him and he just never showed up. I don't know whether he had a date and, you know, because he 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 was going out with a lot of ladies at the time. Also, this is the 80s, so maybe he had to return some videos. Could be. He also could have been watching speeches by Ronnie Reagan. Well, well, Mr. Gorbachev, build that wall. Yeah, good. I mean, you you know, all all sorts of things could have been going on. But he, he so he doesn't come. Now, John Hassel, in, in recent interviews, he says... Well, they started the record without me. It was always supposed to be a three-person record. They sent me tapes of what they'd done based on my work. 
and it sound I I didn't like it. It sounded kind of bad to me. Um, so I decided not to be on it. Um, which then I guess turned into a rift with him and Brian Eno over the years, which lasted a really long time until I guess John Hassel says years and years or decades later, he wrote a 50 page letter to Brian Eno trying to clear the air, uh, which is when they reconnected. Now they're working together, but he does say, um, he's had, this is a quote. I've had zero contact with David. He's not exactly in the same intellectual class with Brian. So that's not surprising. (laughs) whoa (laughs) yeah so he he i guess when it comes out by the way they did a they did a a photo shoot of the three of them that came out in a french magazine that was sort of like the french life and rolling stone magazine um where it was talking about how they were doing this record together so the record comes out he's not a part of it for whatever reason and he feels kind of ripped off and and says that he didn't have the kind of managers that could have sued them. <laughs> so he feels oh, burnt. He feels burnt by by old sourpuss. And this is years. all because they had planned to record together, and then and then somehow either... he he's not part of it at the end of it. Whether he chose not to be a part of it because he didn't like what they were doing, or he just didn't show up, or they. But it's not like he recorded a bunch of stuff for them and they used it and I think didn't they credit did, I him. think he did like send them some tapes of him playing some stuff, which they base songs on. I don't know exactly what it is. He's not credited as a writer on any of these songs. Um, so who knows? But he he kind of felt like he had a court case uh and but then ended up clearing the air with with old sourpuss and now they work together. Hmm. So these guys just cannot make an album without controversy regarding the writing credits. Okay. So, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, a classic um, that is fun to listen to, but is not on permanent rotation for either of us, it sounds like. No. <laughs> no. No. So, um, there, by the way, the reason this does not come out until 1981 is they had a lot of, it was one of the first um, instances of sample clearance issues. They, they Apparently, there was one sample of someone that they just could not clear, and it took years and years, and then they couldn't clear it, and so they ended up having to rework um, some of the songs, which Old Sourpuss says now, well, it actually made the album better. I'm glad we couldn't clear it. Of course he does. Of course he does. <laughs> so this comes out February of 1981. Um, meanwhile, finally, Mr. Burns tells everyone in Talking Heads, yeah, I'm making this solo record. And so George Harrison is like, well, you're going to make a solo record? I'm going to make a solo record. So he gets money from Sire, the record label, to go make a solo record. And um, then Chris and Tina are sitting there going like, well, we don't really want to make a solo record until they look at their bank account. I guess uh, after this tour, the whole band looked at their bank accounts and there was no money in them. (laughs) Like they hadn't made any money in this band, strangely enough. Hmm. Um, Chris and Tina had $2,000 in the bank. (laughs) So they're like, well, we better make a solo record. Meanwhile, Mr. Burns, who had been, we talked last episode, he'd been dating Tony Basil, the choreographer and Mm -hmm. singer. 
Um, he is contacted by another choreographer named Twyla Tharp. Right. Who's Famous, a big deal. Big deal. Was a big part of the New York art scene. And I guess this came about because she was under the impression that dance should be just as big as rock music. She's like, why aren't why aren't dance shows treated like rock shows? Why isn't it right. considered to be as popular? And she was dating Bill Graham, the uh, promoter at the time. And she was like, I should collaborate. I should. She'd already choreographed some of her dances to rock music that had already been recorded. But she's like, I should collaborate with with a band. Who should I collaborate? And Bill Graham says, Talking Heads, definitely. And so she goes, okay, great. And she calls up Mr. Burns, whom she apparently felt would share this with the rest of the band. <laughs> and instead, he just turned up solo. <laughs> wow. And goes in and has lunch with her in New York and says like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Doesn't include the rest of the band. Wow. And so that's how Catherine Wheel came about. So right? this is how Catherine Wheel comes about. He goes, yeah, okay, let's collaborate on this. Also starts dating Twyla Tharp, um, who ends up between Twyla Tharp and Tony Basil. They both really influenced Mr. Burns's dancing on stage because mm. with all of the additional musicians and them sounding so funky, he realizes he's got to loosen up. So he works with them on dance moves. So what comes out of this is the next record to come out in 1981, The Catherine Wheel which essentially is the soundtrack to a dance project that Twyla Tharp puts together, hmm. which I have not seen. Have you seen any of it? No, but one of the songs is like one of my favorite songs on talking on uh, Stop Making Sense. Yeah. Two of the songs end up on Stop Making Sense. And um, so it's 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 actually not all instrumentals like My Life in the Bush of Ghosts is. It's, it's a combination of instrumentals and Mr. Burns solo songs um and let's hear a little bit of uh, well you say one of your favorite songs ended up on it is it big business or is it what a day that was what a day that was big business is on stop making sense yes at least in the uh in the extra stuff maybe i'm not sure anyway let's hear what a day mm -hmm. that was so. it is in the uh i will look it up right now and prove you wrong I mean, it sounds a lot different. Yeah, not as good. Big Business is uh, an extra song available on the Blu-ray. Hmm. So yeah, sounds sounds very different. Kind of minimalist. This is such a good part. But man, the Talking Heads version is so much better. Yeah, it's great. This just sounds like a sketch. Let's hear Big Business 
Yeah, what is that song? I don't even know what the that is. Uh, the let's hear the the sort of single, the dance mix, because um, it's a really, it's actually maybe the best song on the record. I think. Talking Heads played four of these songs in concert. Two of them ended up uh, on the Stop Making Sense DVD. That because on Stop Making Sense, they kind of blend this with Ezimbra. Yes. They, That's cool. I've never seen that before. It's really good. And then and then you have the backing singers, like, just tearing through it going, Thank you, that enough. Yeah. It's really good. Anyway, this is, I mean, it's, a, I actually like, I don't know. I like this record. What do you think of it? Yeah, it's cool. I wonder why they didn't include the, that, because when they put out like all those extra tracks on Stop Making Sense, they should have put Big Business and Ezimbra in there. That's ra- that's well, I think they didn't want to. They didn't want to like you know they wanted the movie to come out the way it came out, and then they they added those tracks you know as special features as bonus scenes. You know what I mean? But not till like way not till later. the DVD. Yeah, not till the DVD came out. I mean they they we'll talk about it when we talk about. No, it. I mean like heaven and. Found a job. And oh yeah, those yeah. Songs. You meaning on the CD on the on the on the album? Yeah, yeah. I know. I think the CD might be just almost as long as a CD can be. I think if they added those, it might have been over the limit of what a CD could be. CD could be. CD could be. Hmm. Let's hear eggs in a briar patch. That sounds fun. Yeah. I guess Twilight Tharps, I was I, I've never seen it, but I've I've read about this. It was a dance piece taking on a dysfunctional family, um, not based on either of their own families because they added things like a, a black French maid to it and stuff like that. I don't know, but all all I guess her style is a lot of awkward pedestrian movements. They were talking oh, about, really? yeah, interesting, which. I think when this came out, the reviews were sort of harsh on it. Like they said it was one third genius and two thirds really boring. <laughs> hmm. um, but the music is really good. That's not fair. That's a lot like what people would say about our show. <laughs> I'm not sure what one third. More than others. <laughs> uh, let's hear My Big Hands Fall Through the Cracks. This is one Talking Heads did live. Oh, they did. Yeah. I've never heard any tape of them. I mean, it sounds like memories can't wait. Yeah. All right, so this was a big deal. This is another one that I saw all the time in a record store, and I never pulled the trigger on it either. Yeah, no, me neither. Finally got it when it came out on CD. 
I think I would have liked this more than My Life in the Bush of Ghosts when it came out. So yeah, this was a this is a big deal. I, it is, I, and I rem I, I remember, like you said, not ever pulling the trigger on it because I just didn't have enough money to yeah. buy David Byrne stuff. I was sort of interested in, but I remember it being a big. deal. I remember you you told me that that when you got your first Parks and Rec paycheck, you went out and bought this record. First thing I did, and I told everyone on set, I was like, "Guys, it's nice meeting you. I'm so excited to do this show." Because I get to purchase the Catherine wheel. <laughs> um, so a couple of interesting kind of side records, not pop records. Mr. Burns made just two experimental records. I don't even know if the, uh, these two records are what the other members of Talking Heads expected when he said he was going off and making a solo record. Um, but they came out and were both very influential in the, the New York scene, not really especially um, breaking through to people like you and I, uh, who were a little more interested in, in alternative or pop music, you know, mm -hmm. structure. Um, okay, we need to take a break. When we come back, we will be talking about what the rest of the band was doing in 1981. We'll be right back with more You Talking Talking Heads to My Talking Head after this. Welcome back. You Talking Talking Heads to My Talking Head? Huh? Are you talking Talking Heads Are to you? My Talking Head? Are you? Are you? You are. You are talking heads to my talking head? Talking head to my talking head. Welcome back. So um, let's talk about what the rest of the band was up to um, when Mr. Burns decided to go make his solo records. Um, we talked about George Harrison. He went to the head of Sire Records and said, hey, can I make a record? And, and they said, okay. And this is incredible. He came out with two solo records in 1981. Let, George Harrison did? George Harrison did. Let's hear the hit single from uh, the first one, Somewhere in England. This is All Those Years Ago. I'm shouting all about love Well, they cheated you like a dog yeah, this was huge. This was huge. This was his sort of pop record that he made, saying like, "Hey, he's yeah." It's a tribute to him being in the Beatles. Yeah. Um, and this was kind of his his like, okay, I'm gonna put out a record that appeals to the masses before yeah. I do more of an experimental, more of a weird Talking Heads ish sort of thing. Yeah. So that was the first one he put out. That was called Somewhere in England. Obviously, you've You've all heard that. But he also was working on a more experimental record called The Red and the Black. Mm -hmm. The Red and the Black. Now, I never uh, heard this until, weirdly enough, um, when, I, when, when I finally got iTunes in like 2006, I was just sort of 
flipping around iTunes, you know, going like, whoa, what do they have? Where are they? Flipping around. A bunch of records that I never got when they came out. Now they're all available, downloaded. And and yeah, so this was available. And I was like, fuck yeah. So I bought it. Um, How is it? I never got. I got into Casual Gods like later on. I never listened to this really. So this is good. Let's hear a little bit recently. of it because it essentially it sounds like a Talking Heads record with someone different singing it. So <laughs> let's. It, it's interesting. I mean, it's 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 a lot of the people who work on speaking in tongues and who are in the the touring band. So let's hear. This is Things Fall Apart. It also goes to show how huge Talking Heads were that everyone can just go make solo albums. Yeah. And this is before they even had like a top 10 hit. George Harrison on the bass, by the way. You said that you never be the one to break up. You felt you were just trying to fall down. You thought that no matter what you could take it. You thought that whatever happened, we would make up. You felt that you never be the one to fall down. All right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is very uh, talking headsy. It's sort of like Casual Gods in that it's just more synthy and yeah, it's those kind of more 80s drum sounds. Let's hear uh, this is this one's really good. Worlds in Collision. Oh, there's Nona Hendrix, by the way. Okay, this is Worlds in Collision. You have Bernie Worrell, Adrian Ballou, all the usual suspects are here. Nona Hendricks, Dillette McDonald, Steve Scales! Of yesterday's agreements, remember the divisions of East and West. When three worlds fought for your heart, and everyone is a collaborator, there are only levels of cooperation. And there comes a time when what was wrong becomes right. I know. Yeah, this song. This is a jam. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Jerry Harrison's badass. Or George Harrison. It's crazy that he can make something like this and then something as a bit more traditional like all those years ago yeah, in the I, same period of time. I mean, time. the guy who wrote Here Comes the Sun can experiment like this and come up with something that's yeah. a little more art rock. It's, it's and this is like only like 10 years after My Sweet Lord. It's it's insane, the progression. And um, then just like five, six years later, the Wilburys. I mean, dude has just a depth. He's just, what a bench. What a bench. Deep bench. D- 
deep, deep bench. Um, I like this record. It, it, the, the one eh, criticism you could say is is that you sort of miss David Byrne being the singer in a way, you know, uh, 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 George Harrison is a good sing. I mean, this is his experimental stuff. He's a great singer, of course, in the Beatles and everything yeah. else. Um, his experimental records, um, you know, I, the, the jams are really good. Maybe could have used Mr. Burns singing on him. It's also a little just tinny, just the sound wise. I like the bassiness of talking heads that I, I kind of miss that rhythm section. Rhythm section. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of the rhythm section, we have to talk about the Tom Tom Club. Yeah, the most successful of the uh, Talking Heads solo ventures. So let's talk about what happened. So Tina and Chris, they look in their bank account. They only have $2,000 and they say... 2K. 2K, of course, yeah. Two uh, bennies. Two bananas. Two large. Two big ones. Two bozos. <laughs> Does anyone call? Is this talking about money, by the way? Yeah, it is. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Talk About Money. This is Scott. And this is Scott. And we're just talking about things that people call $1,000 bills. Increments of 1000 Increments yeah. of 1000 And um, does anyone call them bozos? <laughs> Because I if think, they don't, we need to start it and we need I, to be credited for it. I think it's perfect for that particular increment of I bozo. I think it's right. Hey, like, uh, hey, you owe me a bozo. Yeah, I need that's gonna that AC unit's gonna be 15 bozos. <laughs> please, please start this. Okay, let's do it. Bozos. Okay. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Good app. Yeah, Short, yeah, yeah. sweet, well, got in, got out. And started something. I think a little bit of a cultural moment there. Yeah, a lot like me during sex. Got in, yep. got out, cultural moment. Cultural moment. <laughs> 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 um, okay, so Chris and Tina, they say, well, fuck, we got to do something because we need money. Um, so they call up the head of Sire Records, which had just been bought by Warner Brothers, I think. Yeah. Um, so they had a lot more money. And uh, head of Sire Records says... Uh, no, I can't afford another Talking Head solo record. No, I'm not going to give you a deal. So they're, they're like, cool, thanks. Cool, thanks, bro. Appreciate. Preach. Preach. So Guess we won't be getting any bozos from you. <laughs> that is a negative on the bozos then, I assume? Negative on the bozo. So they call up their manager and their manager says, well, you know, I guess I could call up my friend Chris Blackwell over at Island Records. Now, Chris Blackwell, very, very uh, influential record uh, uh, company owner who did, basically broke Bob Marley. Um, And he was- Island Records. Island Records. He was really bummed when he didn't sign Talking Heads, that when when they went to Sire instead, so- Yeah, he was like, fuck. He was like, fuck this. Fuck, Bob Marley, shut the fuck up. I'm trying to grieve. I was trying to get, make more bozos. <laughs> Hundreds of bozos. Hundreds of bozos. Um, So how many bozos does Mark Zuckerberg have, by the way? 
in his net worth. God, I mean, can you even measure that that amount of bozos? He must have a million bozos. At least a million bozos. No, five, a hundred million bozos. No, he doesn't. He's a billionaire, isn't he? Yeah, but a bozo is a thousand. I know, but... A thousand, a thousand... One hundred million times one bozo? That's <laughs> okay. good um, So Chris Blackwell says, yeah, I would love to do a, a record deal with you guys. What if you did... What if you came down to... to, to uh, Nassau and just made a single first. What do you say? And then then we'll figure out if you're going to do a, an album. So um, they say, yeah, that's cool. And they get this idea in their head. What if we did kind of a collective record, you know, where mm-hmm. we got a bunch of friends and we jammed and we all just kind of like came Smoke up with the music weed. while we smoked some fucking weed. So they go down. Um, first of all, before they go down, they, they say there's only one person that can produce this record, and that is Lee Scratch Perry. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> the, the reliable <laughs> Lee Scratch Perry. The ever reliable. <laughs> so they go and, and meet set him. Set your clock. Set your watch. Yep. They go and meet him at the Howard Johnson Hotel in New York, which is coincidentally just two years later where I stayed um, on my first trip to New York when I was really? 12 years old. Yes. The one with the, like, diner in it in Times yeah, Square? Yeah, that was it. I don't think it's there anymore. Um, So they go meet him, and he he says, yeah, I definitely, I'm not going to attempt to do his voice. I hope you don't mind. Lee Scratch's voice? Yeah. No. I'm not, not going to do an impersonation of him. I think Don't worry would, about it. No. Um, He says, yeah, definitely, I definitely want to do this. And they go, all right, bro, we'll see you down there. They give him the date that he's supposed to be there, and he's like, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so they go no down. No problem whatsoever. <laughs> of course I'll be there. there. Who are you talking to? You're you talking to Lee Scratch Perry. on me. <laughs> they go down to Nassau. They, they, I guess with the money they got for the record, they, they buy an apartment um, with a beautiful view out to yeah. the ocean and they, they renovate it. And um, which is a weird way to <laughs> spend your spend money. <laughs> your two bozos. <laughs> So, um, so they, they buy this apartment, which, um, on the street where, where it was, they don't have, uh, numbers for any of the houses. All of the, all of the buildings have names. So they name it the Tom Tom Club, just at, like, as a joke. Their apartment. Their apartment. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, day one comes and goes and Lee Scratch Perry doesn't show up. And um, according to Chris's book, he's like, we figured, yeah, sure. I mean, he's he's not the most punctual guy in the world. One day, that's fine. He'll yeah. be here tomorrow. <laughs> Two weeks go by. <laughs> he does not show up. And finally, someone gets him on the phone and is like, dude, are you coming to produce the record? Like, every, it's all set up. We have your airfare. Like, everything is all paid for and he's like oh yeah 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 yeah, definitely definitely I d- i'm definitely yeah, gonna can, do that you can depend on me you i i will be there 100%. here's the deal here's the deal here's what you gotta do you just gotta pay me um a thousand dollars an hour to to be there so every hour he gets one bozo <laughs> one, one bozo he says look i'll definitely be there for a bozo an hour every 60 minutes one bozo do we have a deal and they're like well wait a second and and they we, go well. You're trying to price yourself out. Out. Do you? Are you just looking for an excuse not to go? Like, that's that would 
costs so much money to pay you a thousand dollars an hour. He goes, no problem. We'll, we'll finish the record in eight hours. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> Which I guess you could make a record in eight hours if all the songs were already written and you were just like ripping through them like the Ramones or something. But they were trying to do this thing where, which was more of a collective where they were jamming and stuff. So they're like, Lee Scratch Perry, later, bro. So he ends up not doing it. Um, They instead. Eight hours. <laughs> eight hours. <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> we'll just be done in eight, eight hours. hours. I just need eight I need, hours. I need eight bozos. <laughs> I need eight bozos. Eight, eight, eight hours. Eight hours. And we're, we're, we'll, we got it. <laughs> so, um, Instead, they turned to Stephen Stanley, who was the guy who was uh, working with Brian Eno on Remain in Light, and they clear that with um, with Chris Blackwell. And he says, great idea. Yeah, great. Just send me the single. Go ahead and do the single. Okay, so this is where it starts to get weird. So they ask a bunch of people to come down to Nassau, but... Um, According to Adrian Ballou, our old friend that Tawny Newsom loves, he goes down. He doesn't have any kind of a deal with them, right? Right. He just he's he essentially and this is according to him. This is according to him. Yes. He goes down and spends a couple of weeks there, and essentially nothing is written, and he ends up writing along with Chris and Tina. He ends up writing the Tom Tom Club record, mm-hmm. right? But he's he doesn't make a deal, so he's being paid as a session musician. Right. Right? So he's jamming with them, and he doesn't think much of it. He's like, yeah, it's cool, whatever. You know, I'm working with Talking Heads. I'm working with these guys. Everything's cool. We'll work out the deal. It'll all be fine. He leaves after a couple of weeks. He gets When he finally gets the album, he listens to it, and he's like, First of all, a lot of his guitar work is taken off of it because the producer didn't like loud, distorted guitar. But and who ended up being the producer? That was uh, uh, Stephen Stanley, we just mentioned, right. from Remain okay. in Light. So a lot of his guitar work is taken off, but a lot of the guitar work that's taken off, they have then made those guitar lines the melody of the song oh and, and turned them into the singing parts. And did he get writing credit? And he realizes that he wrote most of the songs on the record. And in fact, on one uh, called Le Elephant, he plays like all of the the instruments on it. And then he looks at the writing credits and he's not on any of them. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Hey, boy. And he says, well, it's probably not worth making a big deal out of it. These guys are my friends. He, he, this is according to him, he calls them up to say, hey, he leaves a message. Hey, we need to renegotiate this because like I wrote a lot of this record and they ghost him and they never call him back. So wait, Tina and Chris Farts kind of do the same thing to him that that happened to them on Remain in Life. Oh gosh. Ironic, nay. Yeah. Um, now that is according to Adrian Blue. Yeah, he, that's his he, side of the story. He essentially like went years and years kind of feeling like he got, especially when one of the songs becomes a huge hit. Yeah, he, huge. He feels like, okay, well, I just got screwed out of a lot of money. And I got, he, he's, I think he got paid, uh, he said, uh, eight bozos to do that oh, record. Oh, man. 
So now, according to Chris, so I was really, you know, I'd read that and I'd read articles about it. And, and one of the Talking Heads books goes into it in detail with quotes from him and everything. And I read that. So I was interested to see what Chris Farts writes about it in his book. Yeah. And he. I don't remember anything about that. Okay. So what he says is, we really liked Adrian from working, you know, from touring Talking Heads with him. So we really liked him. So we offered him, we were like, hey, bring your wife, bring your kids down here. We'll pay all the expenses. We'll pay airfare. You come down here and party with us in Jamaica and work on this record. And that's just because we liked him so much. And then then the next sentence is about, he stayed in our apartment, which is like not all expenses paid as far as I'm concerned. But, um, but and then uh, the the one quote about it is, he spent two weeks there after we'd already written a bunch of songs. And I find out later that the guitar tone he, he used on our song Le Elephant, which I'd mentioned, he then used on a King Crimson song called uh, Elephant Something. And then Chris, Chris just goes, cool. Like, what a dick. Uh. Um, and he's he's trying to play it off like, this dude, we, and he goes, and we cut him in on all the writing credits and all this. And he, he did this to us. Now they got the writing credits figured out by the time, eventually, by the time that uh, Mariah Carey sampled a genius of love, Uh Adrian Blue is listed as a writer of it at that point. So I think it all, it all finally got sorted out. And Adrian Blue was sort of passive about it and didn't want to make waves. But eventually, when it just became obvious the song is too popular to yeah. not to not spread a little of the wealth, um, good for he, him. He gets cut into it. So, so that seems to be all taken care of. But it also is a thing where um, here's the other really weird wrinkle. So Adrian Blue is playing with Talking Heads, right? And according to him. Tina, Chris, and George Harrison all say like, hey, dude, do you want to join the band for real? Do you want to be an official fifth member? Mm-hmm. And he kind of And is goes, this before or after this This is Tom before. Tom this is before uh-huh. the Tom Tom Club thing. And he's kind of going like, well, maybe, I don't know. And then he, he, he meets with them all. And George Harrison says, well, we got to take it slow. And he goes, have you even talked to Mr. Burns about this? And they all go, no, no, we haven't even like asked him about this. And he's like, yeah, okay. And then according to him, Tina at a certain point is so fed up with Mr. Burns. She says, not only do I want you to join Talking Heads, but I want you to take Mr. Burns' place. Like replace him. Replace him. And I want you to be the the lead singer. And he yeah. goes, I don't think that would work. And now according to Chris in his book, that's all a misunderstanding that what Tina said was, hey, we want you to join the Tom Tom Club. And he misunderstood it and thought it was Talking Heads. Now, I don't know what I believe. It, huh. I would not put it past them to be so fed up with Mr. Burns that they want to replace him with this young, good-looking Adrian Ballou. Yeah. Um, who knows? But I. But then, according to Adrian Ballou, he meets with Chris Blackwell, and Chris Blackwell loves his guitar playing Is like, what do you want to do in your career? And he goes, I want to do a solo record. And Chris Blackwell gives him the solo deal right then and there without <laughs> hearing anything. According to Chris, they, he and Tina said, hey, Chris Blackwell, you should give Adrian Ballou a solo record because we really like him so much. He's so great. Like out of the goodness of their heart, they 
That's how he got a solo deal. That's how he got a solo deal, and then he goes and betrays them like this. I don't know. Weird shit. I I don't remember any of that from the book. It's kind of a bummer that they blew him off. (laughs) What? Boom! Booyah! Booyah! Three bozos for that joke. Bozo booyah. (laughs) Bozo, 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 booyah! Bozo booyah! In any case... um, Apologies. They they make this record. They apparently all have fun doing it. Um, the lead singer is Tina, and she brings both of her sisters down. Uh, the same sisters who sang on "Fear of Music," and they all. Yeah, we kind- should hear this because this yeah. song. If people don't know it already, they they will recognize it immediately. It is sure. ubiquitous. Well, let's hear actually before before the ubiquitous one. Let's hear the first single that they did, which then made. Chris Blackwell say, yeah, go ahead and make an album. This is uh, the first single they ever put out is a 12-inch. This is Wordy Rapping Hood. And this is pre-Heart of Glass. Yes. So this is kind of a... Uh, they. This is kind of a proto-rap song, like what we were talking about last week when white people didn't know what rap was. Represent real hip hop. Her sisters. And this became like a little club hit. Like this is like were, a club hit. Yeah, yeah. people liked it. Uh, they released it in England as a 12-inch. Um, they still had no record deal in the U.S. By the way, because Island was just distributing them in England. Yeah. Um, so essentially this whole record is kind of like it's it's a party record it's it's trying to be sort of like have a lot of different influences from funk to world music um a lot of a lot of these songs aren't even really songs they're just sort of like sketchy stuff like there's one song booming and zooming which just has chris farts like essentially doing like radio a radio transmission on it um but then weirdly enough like one of the songs became so fucking huge it probably will transcend anything talking heads ever puts out like i think it'll be popular for years and years to come when people have just basically forgotten talking heads um this is genius of love track two What what song did Mariah Carey use this for? Uh, Heartbreaker. 
Heartbreak jerk got the best. Yeah, this has been sampled so many times. Um, let me yeah, see if I can find a list. Incredible. Of all the... I mean, I remember hearing this, not knowing it was had anything to do with Talking Heads. I thought yeah. it was just a, a a different band or whatever. And this, this is just—it's so much of a part of kind of the cultural collective yeah. consciousness. Oh, I mean, totally. Everyone just knows this. Okay, people who have incorporated Genius of Love include Public Enemy, Redman, Cameron, Second to None, Tupac, Seagram's, Buster Rhymes, PM Dawn, Eric Sermon, um, Warren G. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. This Can is- we hear the Mariah Carey? Yeah. Let me find it. It'll take me a second to boot it up. It's crazy, too, because this was like a huge worldwide smash hit. And the only thing David Byrne ever said to them about it was a few years later, in like an elevator, he turned to Chris and Tina and just said, how did you get those hand claps? And then they told him, he was like, huh. Yeah. And that was the only thing he ever said about it. In fact, when they were all in a taxi together and their manager, they don't know why he decided to say it in front of Mr. Burns, but he says, oh, guess what? The Top Tom Club record just went gold, which the Talking Heads had never done. And everyone's just silent because it's so uncomfortable. And supposedly Tina says, well, it would have been better if Talking Heads had went gold first. That that would have been, you know, I, I would have liked that more, but that's great. But no one else said anything. They were it's like so supposedly crazy. so jealous. George Harrison says that the success of it kept them together as a band because they wanted to outdo what what this had done. Like yeah, they, they right. couldn't quit and have this be the most popular thing, so they all stayed together. Um, all right, this is Mariah Carey's interpolation of it. Yeah. Jay Z on this, right? Hell yeah. Oh wait, no, this is the wrong song. <laughs> Sounds kind of kind of similar though, doesn't it? I think it's fantasy. I kept thinking it was gonna cut in. <laughs> I like this though. We should do a show on Mariah Carey. Yeah. Okay, I think it's fantasy. Here we go. With ODB. ODB? R.I.P. Keeping it real, son. That's right. The shining star. My shining star, girl. <laughs> Yo, New York in the house. Here we go. It's Brooklyn in the house. Right. Uptown in the house. God, she has so many hits. Jesus. That was crazy. Sacramento. Hell yeah. I lived on 14th and N. Come on, baby, come on. Oh. When you walk by every night, talking sweet 
want to get to the chorus. Hold on. There we go. God, they must have made a Fortune. so many bozos. So many bozos. Way. Thankfully, Adrian Blue has bozos now of his own. Um, by the way, they they copped the beat from a Zap song, "More Bounce to the Ounce." Um, hmm. Let's hear a little bit of that, and you can. Essentially, they really liked this beat, and Chris Farts just kind of replicated it. So yeah, um, that became a smash. Tom Tom Club became more popular than Talking Heads, especially um, overseas, where um, they, they went on tour and Tom Tom Club opened for Talking Heads and sometimes was billed above Talking Heads because they were so much more popular. Hmm. Um, now, as a record, have you listened to it recently? Uh, no. I mean, when I was listening to the, to, to the book, I would listen to, uh, the album whenever he would mention particular songs, but I haven't like listened to the album in a while. It's, um, it, it, again, it's not really, it doesn't feel like a real record to me. Like, like they lucked into, to genius of love and could have, they didn't know it was a hit. So instead of making a whole bunch of songs like that, they just made this kind of like experimental toss yeah. off fuck around album. Here's yeah. Le Elephant. Most of the songs don't feel like songs. There's yeah. they're sort of like it's like party music. Yeah, it's weird sketches. They had no idea. God, it must have infuriated Mr. Burns. Oh yeah. Because he's doing all this conceptual stuff with Brian Eno and the Catherine Wheel and and then this is Adrian Ballou. Listen, Chris and Tina go off and just make party music, and it's huge. Yeah, I think he he cracked once that you know it was something to the effect of like it was music for more common people or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same time, he's doing stuff that is turning him in the eyes of the press, you know, the New York press especially, as like the genius, you know, because yeah. he's doing these like incredibly influential stuff but Tina and Chris are they made this record which made them rich beyond their wildest dreams with bozos Buco Dolores Buco Buco Dolores I think they bought a house in Connecticut with the money and let's hear on 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 yeah I like this one One thing about Genius of Love, it kind of reminds me of um, the Breeders' Cannonball, which mm-hmm. I read once. The Breeders' Cannonball isn't really a song as much as it's a collection of interesting sounds. Does that make sense? Like it's got Cannonball. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's got like the that pop. But it's but but what I mean to say is is like the way it's produced. It's like the drum hit. Yeah. Like everything is a is an interesting sound put together. But Genius of Love reminds me of that, where it's like. 
it it's let's hear a little bit more of it it's all these just interesting things put in there you got chris farts like shouting about james brown and yeah and then it's an ode to all of their like funk influences bohannon and um but yeah the melody is great the the keyboard part that's the one part that george harrison asked them about he goes How'd you get that keyboard part? And they told him, and then he never talked about the record. Yeah, again. it's so weird. <laughs> um, yeah, listen to this. Just like interesting shit. Yeah. So that's kind of the extent of their solo stuff up until this point right i mean yeah that's so that's everything they... that they put out in 1981 they put out which is a lot of, of stuff it's a lot of stuff um and and then you know of course we can talk about it briefly they they put out a live record oh right the next year called the name of this band is talking heads which was an interesting way to put together a live record where um each side of it was from a different year right so the first side was, I believe, the um, it was from the uh, More Songs About Buildings and Food tour, I yeah. believe. And then the next side was the Fear of Music. And then the second LP was all with the expanded band that they'd been touring with Remain of Light. And there's, I mean, Stopping Making Sense, obviously, is a classic. Yeah, but it's like it's, the quintessential. But it's super interesting to to hear... Essentially, this is the only recording of the Adrian Ballou, because Adrian Ballou doesn't uh, end yeah, up on because yeah, because yeah. he ends up joining King Crimson and saying like enough with Talking Heads. Right. Uh, Robert Fripp, yeah, Robert Fripp calls him up, and he's like a prog rock guy anyway. So because he worked with Frank Zappa, and Robert Fripp calls him up and goes, "Hey, do you want to do you want to be in King Crimson?" And he goes, "Later, Talking Heads." And then he feels kind of burned by them anyway, so he just he just takes off. So the name of this band is Talking Heads. That whole second LP, um, and and on the CD they expanded even further. Um, is essentially the the one document you have of Adrian Ballou playing with Talking Heads, and it's really interesting to hear essentially the Stop Making Sense group with Adrian yeah. Ballou doing weird guitar sounds on it. So yeah. let's hear a little bit of, this is Warning Sign. See if you can hear Adrian Ballou chiming in everyone. There it is. noises with his guitar it's pretty awesome and they talk about how they loved playing with him because he never like he would never play the same thing twice right he, he they never had to say like okay you play at this he would just play whenever he wanted and they yeah. loved anything that he ever played with them because it all sounded great and additive and insane That's awesome. Um, let's hear a little bit of the song Drugs, because I know that you and I don't really like that song necessarily on record, but the live version kind of slaps. Mm -hmm. Let's hear this. Mm -hmm. 
during wartime from this period. It sounds pretty similar to Stop Making Sense also. Here's Life During Wartime. Yeah. It's fast. Yeah, faster. Has the backup singers. Um, this is, I believe this is still Gillette McDonald and Nona Hendrix were still with them at the time. Cokie Roberts. Um, let's yeah. hear a little bit of uh, Born Under Punches just to hear a taste of this. But this is a cool record because it, it gives you it every is. era it's, of it's the really cool. Bits. Yeah. Um, it's worth and, getting. And on CD, sure. it's just uh, so much music. It's great. Yeah. So at the end of all of this... They put out this record, this live record, as sort of a stopgap. Um, everyone assumes that they're putting it out because they're breaking up. But no, they're not breaking up because they got a... Talking Heads has to put out something better than Genius of Love. So they decide to stay together and make another record. And they end up making another record. Quite a breakthrough. Um, that is the end of the story here. Adam, anything you want to add about this uh, period of Talking Heads? I don't think so, bro. Anything you want to say about the years 1981 or 1982 that you were going through? I just remember it being a big deal when John Belushi died. Yeah. Speaking of Cody Roberts. seeing it on the front page of the newspaper after the night before staying up all night with my friend Kemper watching the Blues Brothers and all the, because I was just like peak Belushi. So into all that stuff. What what affected you more, John Lennon dying or John Belushi? Oh, John Belushi, for sure. I think John Lennon was, 80. what, 1980? I, yeah. I, I was too young to understand. I remember my brother saying it and my mom reacting, but I don't remember understanding what that was. Meant, you know? What's interesting to, uh, to me is because my parents actually had Beatles records in the house and I grew up loving the Beatles ever since I was like four years old. Yeah. I was really more, um, I, I was, I was really upset about the, the John Lennon dying, but I was even more upset that they preempted Little House on the Prairie to, with news coverage of it. And I was, yeah. I mean, that night was Little House on the Prairie night at my Yeah, I house. mean, John Lennon is a, cultural figures but when am i going to see people. this episode of little yeah, house on the prairie it's far more important to know what <laughs> happened to the ingles i was really upset about it and then <laughs> and then when john belushi died i didn't even hear about it i think i remember watching chips uh on a friday night and it was my favorite show and at, during the end credits they announced that it would move to sunday nights um then the following week chips has a new night and i remember looking at my dad and just realizing I won't be able to watch it anymore because it starts at eight and goes to nine and Sunday nights are a school night and I will no longer be able to watch it. And I just started crying and I was inconsolable. (laughs) Oh, these are the problems that you and I had back in the day of, if you missed something, I think it was gone. Have I told you about, Okay, so A-Team was my favorite show. Oh, yeah. And, but I never saw the first episode, the two-hour pilot, right? Mm-hmm. 
and it finally was going to be repeated. But I was, where was I? I went to that Howard Johnson's in New York. I was on my one week New York back East trip and we looked at the schedule and I told, I told my mom, I was like, please, I gotta, I gotta see this. This is important. I've, I, you know, this is the only time they're ever going to repeat it. We looked at the schedule and it looked like we were getting into, I believe, Maine um, on a plane. And if we got to the bed and breakfast um, within like an hour and a half that we were staying at, I'd be able to see it. And we got off the plane, we rented the car, and then my dad got lost. And I remember it was so tense because everyone knew this was like the most important thing (laughs) to me. It's like Rain Man with Judge Wapner. (laughs) Yeah, and I was just like, it was so tense in the car and my sister started crying. Oh, God. Um, And it was just so tense. And then finally we figured our way out of the airport, got to the bed and breakfast. And I remember the, the people who owned the bed and breakfast were this like older couple. And they... They said, like, well, apparently uh, we hear it's really important for you to watch this television program. Huh? Yeah. And I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and so I watched the the pilot of the A-Team, and they had a different actor playing face. Oh, and wow. uh, And I remember thinking, like, I don't even remember liking it, just, like, checking it off the list of, like, oh, yeah. okay, I saw it, I saw it. And then within another year, I think I hated the A-Team. <laughs> Right. <laughs> it was just, it's just such like when you're a kid, I don't know. How do you, okay, Adam, you're, it's a, so important you're a parent. To, how do you explain yeah. to your kid that stuff like this isn't important? Well, you, you kind of, you try not to frame it like that because it is important. Because it is important to them. them but yeah. But, and the stakes are that high. Can you ever say like in five years you're going to yeah. look? We say that all the time, but. But it doesn't work because it's important. After granting them the the right. kind of their feelings and the the fact that this no is pun important, intended. yeah, <laughs> um, uh, you you also can slide that in that this is stuff that feels huge now, yeah, but it'll be okay. And but you you know you also have to remember that that stuff, you know, it's the same emotional. Uh, it's the emotional equivalent of now, like, you know, the election or something that does mean a lot to a job right. or whatever it is. All of these are just distractions, I guess. But um, I don't know. Yeah, yeah we're all going to die. Yeah, we're all going to die. Anyway, great place to end this. Um, we will see you next episode for a seminal album in Talking Heads history. But until then, Adam and I certainly hope... That you find what you're looking for! Mm, bye!